Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Today we'll hear a conversation with Scott Kadersha, author of Ready or Not, spelled with a K, Ready or K-N-O-T, 12 Conversations Every Couple Needs to Have Before Marriage. That's coming up in the 5 o'clock hour. We'll also uh, take a look at the new Discovery Plus docu-series on Hillsong that's due to uh, be released in uh, late March. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. Well, it was February 23rd, 1945, six Marines with Easy Company, 2nd Battalion, 28th Marines, 5th Division. They raised the American flag on top of Mount Siribachi during the Battle of Iwo Jima. The flag on the 546-foot dormant uh, volcano cone at the southern tip of the island could be seen for a great distance and was an inspiration for the U.S. Marines and sailors who witnessed it and heard about it later. Three of the six Marines pictured, Sergeant Michael Strank, Corporal Harland Block and Private First Class Franklin Sousley were killed in action before the battle concluded on the 26th of March. Well, there were 6,871 Americans killed, 19,217 wounded on Iwo Jima. The Medal of Honor was awarded to 22 Marines and five sailors, sailors rather, 14 of them posthumously, 13 Marines and one sailor. Admiral Chester Nimitz, commander of Pacific Fleet and Pacific Ocean Areas, noted that the Amer- of the Americans on Iwo Jima, uncommon valor was a common virtue. Joe Rosenthal's iconic image that you're probably familiar with was the second flag raised that day, a 96 by 56 inch flag to replace the 54 by 28 inch flag. And that image was the inspiration for the Marine Corps War Memorial outside the old um, Witzel Gate at Arlington National Cemetery. Well, both flags can now be seen in the National Cemetery of the Marine Corps near Marine Corps Base Quantico. The major conflicts there cost 616,124 American lives. 1,120,283 were wounded there in that bloody theater of warfare, one battle at a time. Too many Americans um, have no concept of the price of liberty bequeathed to us, to them, the price of freedom um, many squander today. Well, ignorance is bliss until it's not. Well, in 1940, Winston Churchill observed, never was so much owed by so many to so few. And that is indeed the case. Today being the anniversary of that occasion, February 23rd, 1945. Well, as you know, much of the world's attention is focused on what's happening between Russia and Ukraine. For the most part, it's essentially what Russia is going to do next and whether or not Ukraine will fall quickly. Well, today is a special day in Russia. It is the uh, a day of celebration, a day of um, what do they call it? The father, the fatherland day in Russia, which is symbolic. And many expected that this would be the day that perhaps larger numbers would go into Uh, Russia or Ukraine proper. But I wanted to try to provide a little bit of context for what's happening there and might help us understand what's likely to happen next, although no one actually knows. Well, the question is, could the conflict between Russia and Ukraine turn into a long-term war in Europe? Well, the answer, unknown, but it could be yes. Is World War III on the horizon? Well, that's a pessimistic view. Everyone hopes no. How will America be affected by Russia's invasion of Ukraine? And you could argue that they've already invaded Ukraine, but broadening that invasion 
is a real possibility. And what can China's response to the situation tell us? Or what will our response to the situation, perhaps more importantly, tell China? Well, America and many European nations likely will face significant challenges because of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. It's already begun. It doesn't take a great leap of imagination to see how this conflict could spill over and could spiral out of control. It is a rapidly developing situation. According to open source estimates, there are about 10,000 Russian troops that have entered into eastern Ukraine. I'd say the second invasion of Ukraine since 2014, which would have been technically the first. Now, 2014 was the first invasion, but I think uh, what we're seeing now is the tip of the iceberg of what's, uh, what we're going to see militarily in the coming days. Now, basically what Russia has done is formalize an arrangement that has already been in practice since 2014. Now, Russia has already controlled this section of eastern Ukraine, and I'm talking about the area that they have sent troops into since 2014. It's well known there are Russian troops there, and although Russia never admitted publicly that they were there, now it's uh, stated publicly that, yes, indeed, there are Russian troops there serving as so-called peacekeepers. That's Putin's chosen word. At the end of 2013, the Ukrainian president at that time, President Viktor um, Yanukovych, uh, decided to sign a free trade deal with Europe. Russia didn't like that, and President, uh, the president was very close to the Kremlin at the time, and the Kremlin put pressure on him to change his mind. So he did. And the Ukrainian people didn't like this. By the end of 2013 and early 2014, the Ukrainian people started to rise up and they ousted that president. He fled to Russia. In fact, his government was replaced. Well, at that time, Russia was very nervous by all of this. They thought that they had uh, uh, good control over Ukraine. They were surprised that the Ukrainian people would feel so passionately about a trade agreement with the first, the rest of Europe, and Russia decided to act. They did so in 2014. And what they did was uh, invade and occupy parts of Ukraine called the Crimean Peninsula that equates to about 6 to 7% of Ukraine's territory. It's a significant chunk of the land. And then the Russians started a separatist movement in eastern Ukraine uh, in that region. So this movement began when Russians uh, came and occupied that area. So they started a separatist uh, movement. Um, They uh, landed in uh, two regions, one called Luhansk and the other called Donsk. And before 2014, uh, there was no separatist movement before that in that region. Well, since then, since 2014, Uh, What we've seen in this um, frozen conflict between Ukraine and Russia-backed separatists and the Russian forces who were in those two regions undercover over the past eight years is something of an escalation. What happened over the weekend was the Russian parliament, it calls the Duma, uh, requested uh, to President Putin that he recognize the independence of those two so-called countries. And there's no question he orchestrated that question put to him. One is called the People's Republic of Luhansk. The other is called the People's Republic of Donsk. And then yesterday, uh, Vladimir Putin agreed to recognize the independence and then move uh, in peacekeepers, in other words, military forces. Now, reportedly, the only other country in the world that has recognized the independence of these two fictitious countries is Syria. And it's also a rumor that Cuba, Nicaragua and Venezuela have also done so. But it is a direct violation of international law. And these two so-called independent countries are, in fact, internationally recognized as being part of Ukraine. So that's where we are today. Russia has essentially moved in troops to protect what they see as being two new countries uh, they've requested uh, that have requested Russian support. So these are the 
Uh, This is the pretext for moving the troops into those areas where they've been since 2014. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back with more. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. A reminder, coming up in the second hour, we'll hear from Scott Kadersha, author of Ready or Not, 12 Conversations Every Couple Needs to Have Before Marriage. Well, Russian troops have been uh, going in and out of uh, the regions that I've mentioned uh, just before the break for about eight years. There's been uh, an uptick in ceasefire violations and fighting along the front lines between Luhansk and Donsk. Uh, collectively, this region is called the Donbass, word you've probably been hearing. When people say that, they're referring to this part of eastern Ukraine, which includes D- Luhansk and Donsk. Along the front lines of this area, there have been an uptick in fighting. There have been some false flag operations over the past week or so, where flush, uh, Russia has orchestrated these attacks inside the two areas. Uh, whether it's the shelling of a gas pipeline or the attempted assassination of one of the leaders in Donsk, But as a way to try to justify military intervention, like they're blaming the Ukrainians for their actions. So this would be the pretext for moving in additional troops into other areas with the Internet uh, geolocating the Internet sleuths and so on. It may uh, be that false flags are not really possible. These alleged attacks have been debunked using metadata and geolocating or uh, uh, locator tools and that sort of technology. So it's going to be difficult for them to try to stand on that pretext. But nonetheless, there have been efforts. Well, the big problem for Ukraine and the big question mark is how much further is Russia going to go? They recognize these two entities as independent countries. They alone with a couple of others saying, OK, uh, but they've um, they've done so using the existing provincial borders inside Ukraine. Now, Luhansk is a province of Ukraine and Donsk is a province of Ukraine as well. But the separatists don't control either of those provinces in full. Part of the province is controlled by the separatists, but most of it's controlled by the government, the Ukrainian government. So would Russia take the steps to push the Ukrainian authorities out beyond the borders of the province? That means remains to be seen, but is a possibility. And the response from the international community is a big question mark as well. Well, it's been mixed so far. It was thought that they could um, pressure uh, Vladimir Putin and prevent him from moving into Ukraine, and they're still hoping that's possible. But it's been a pretty mixed bag. The toughest response he actually uh, has received thus far has been Germany, where the chancellor announced that Germany is going to uh, stop with the certification process of the Nord Stream 2 natural gas pipeline. This was a pipeline that was designed to deliver natural gas directly from Russia to Germany under the Baltic Sea and not bypass any of the other countries in Eastern Europe. This was very unpopular in Central and Eastern Europe for a number of reasons, which you could probably imagine, mainly because they felt like it gave Russia too much control over Europe's energy market. It also gave Germany too much control in accessing the European energy market as well. Well, when President Biden came into office, he lifted the sanctions that former President Donald Trump had put in place regarding the Nord Stream 2 and decided to greenlight the project as a way to try to improve relations with Germany. But it looks like Germany has now decided that because of Russia's actions as part of the response, they're stopping the certification process of Nord Stream 2 and that pipeline as of right now, will not be used. From the United Kingdom, we've seen a fairly robust response, but slightly disappointing. Um, 
Prime Minister Boris Johnson announced today that five Russian banks and three Russian oligarchs are going to be added to their international economic sanctions. The problem is there's many, many other Russian banks that are much bigger and more influential that should be sanctioned and are not. These three Russian oligarchs have already been under U.S. sanctions since 2018, so it's not going to make really much substantive difference. Now, Boris Johnson, when he gave the speech, Uh, in the House of Commons, realized that he wasn't in line with the mood of the House of Commons. They were expecting more. Um, So it wouldn't be surprising if in the next few days we see more sanctions coming from the U.K. Now, here in the United States, we've had limited sanctions coming from the White House. Uh, Last night, the president signed an executive order basically preventing Americans from doing business in either one of those occupied regions, Luhansk or uh, Donsk. Um, Not sure what uh, Americans are doing Uh, business there uh, or how much business they were doing. So it may not make much of a difference. You can't imagine there was um, any at all, given the history since 2014. And if there was, it was probably very insignificant. This has been a lackluster response so far. Well, the president did make some statements earlier today, and we'll get to that a little uh, later in the program as well. Uh, He, the hope was when he made the early announcement yesterday that he would follow up with more announcements. But at the time, Uh, The response has been pretty weak from the White House, so people are hopeful. It is a developing story. It's changing rapidly and has the potential to accelerate rather rapidly. Um, I would uh, like to see uh, economic sanctions put in place that go from the top to the bottom. In the past, we've avoided targeting the most senior people in the Russian political establishment. We've uh, targeted middle or ranking um, oligarchs. We should be sanctioning the foreign minister. We should be sanctioning the president, their defense minister, and those senior officials. Now, that's what some experts are now saying they're hoping for in the days ahead that might actually make a difference in the minds of Vladimir Putin and his operatives. They all like to educate their children in the West. In some cases, in a few cases, they literally keep their mistresses in the West. They have children uh, who live in the West. They like to keep their money in the West. They like to have their real estate portfolio, their property portfolios in the West, in London and New York and Paris. So we uh, we should be going after these assets, they argue. We should really be turning the screws on the Russian leadership to make them very uncomfortable. We should also consider sectorial sanctions. So we should um, be sanctioning the whole of the banking sector, uh, sanctioning the whole of the oil and gas sector, uh, the mining sector. We can perhaps give certain specific waivers if there's a U.S. interest involved, but otherwise we should be sanctioning those Uh, whole sectors or industries. And these are some of the proposals that are being considered in response to what Russia might do next. We have to raise the cost of Russia's aggression to the point where they're going to think twice about doing it again. We need to be arming Ukraine and advanced uh, with advanced anti-aircraft and anti-tank weapons. Uh, Experts are arguing and we need to tell them that it's okay to fight the Russians. You might recall back in 2014 when Russia first invaded, the Obama administration told Ukrainians not to fight, to sit back, that we were going to deal with this through diplomacy. Well, eight years later, clearly this has not happened. Uh, And now we're here once again with Russia. So, uh, again, these experts are suggesting that they should be provided with uh, weapons. Um, They are our friends, not members of NATO, and they should be encouraged to defend themselves. In fact, um, people in Ukraine are now permitted to have weapons of their own in order to defend themselves if the Russians do um, come further into the country. Um, President uh, Biden today said the first tranche of sanctions was uh, was already made on two large Russian financial institutions, VEB and their military bank. 
Sanctions on Russians' sovereign debt. That means that we've cut off Russia's government from Western financing. It can no longer raise money from the West. It can't trade in its new debt on our markets or European markets. And starting tomorrow and continuing in the days ahead, we'll also impose sanctions on Russians' elite and their family members, as suggested just a, a moment ago. Well, the question now is, what is Russia's endgame? What are they trying to get out of this? Is it simply to annex Ukraine or are there um, are there wider uh, efforts in this in this incursion, if you will. Well, ultimately, Russia wants to keep Ukraine out of the Euro-Atlantic community. So that means basically out of the West and wants to keep them aligned with Russia. Now, a lot of people use NATO enlargement as the excuse. But when President Putin gave his speech last night about or the night before last about his decision to recognize the so-called People's Republic of Luhansk and the so-called People's Republic of Donsk, he didn't mention the word NATO for the first 30 minutes of his speech. Now, this is all about empire building spreading Russian influence in a very imperial way. Russia did uh, during the time, as uh, Russia did during the time of the Tsar. This isn't like the Soviet times when the Soviet Union was trying to spread an ideology to spread communism. This is different. This is about building an empire, and that is um, what is thought to be behind uh, Vladimir Putin and the, the moves that are being made now. And for the Russian political elite, they see themselves as being first and foremost European. They understand that unless they control Belarus, control Ukraine, and have great influence in Eastern Europe, then they're not European. They're merely an Asian country, and they don't like that idea. So they see it as almost their obligation to control Ukraine, and their right to control Ukraine um, requires their presence. But of course, Ukraine is an independent country recognized by the international community. And while Ukrainians and the Russians may share many things in common in terms of some uh, language, religion, and so on, they used to have close economic links and cultural links. And even though they have a shared history, they have a distinct history and the, the uh, they've uh, two distinct countries. And this is one of the paradoxes of this whole situation. Before Russia took these steps in 2014, there were many in Ukraine who liked the idea of having close relations with Russia. They wanted to trade with Europe because the, this is uh, the start of free trade um, and discussions in Europe in 2013. They wanted to have trade with Europe because they wanted better economic opportunities, but they didn't mind the idea of having good relations with Russia because of the history and the cultural links. And I'm generalizing here, but since 2014, Putin has done everything possible to undo that sentiment. And these feelings from uh, your average Ukrainian to the point where uh, they almost detest Russia has replaced that um, settling for the the relationship. So in the long run, Russia wants to absorb Ukraine, keep Ukraine under its sphere of influence for a variety of reasons. Now, we'll uh, finish up just a few more comments on this in just a few moments, but do need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've been talking a little bit about what's happening with Russia and the Ukraine, how the international community is responding, and um, just compiled some information from a variety of experts on how they see things happening, a bit of that history, and what to expect. You might have heard the uh, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg. He said that this situation between Russia and Ukraine is the most dangerous moment in European security for a generation. Um, does it have the potential to destabilize Europe is the question many are asking. And could we see other nations aligning themselves either with Russia or with Ukraine and this becoming one large long-term war? Are we looking at World War III? Now, 
I hesitate to even use the word, is, is it another Cold War? But these are questions that are being asked. Well, the answer, of course, is remains to be seen. It is true that this is the greatest security crisis that Europe has faced in a generation, but the reality is nobody knows what's going to happen. We are in uncharted territory. Of course, God knows precisely what's going to happen, but you and I don't. And when the bullets start flying, assuming they do, when the troops start moving and assuming that more of them do, anything can happen. History certainly has taught us that. Mike Tyson, in a famous quote, said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth, and he would know. We have no idea how Russia is going to react if they do meet stiff resistance from Ukraine, and they will to some degree. Uh, they're certainly out um, outmatched, the Ukrainians are, when it comes to Russia. We have no idea how Russia will react if they don't meet stiff resistance and they completely roll through the country in no time at all. They might think maybe we should test our luck in other places. But again, if Russia receives stiff resistance and they start taking serious casualties, a lot of Ukrainian civilians start dying, which actually would be deeply unpopular among uh, younger average Russians. There could be a coup by the military in Russia to replace Vladimir Putin, with whom we wouldn't know. Well, it doesn't take a great leap of imagination to see how things in this conflict could spill over, could spiral out of control, and it would have a huge economic impact on the global economy. Almost half of the world's um, gross domestic product is between North America and Europe. We're each other's number one trading partners. Collectively, we're each other's number one source of foreign investment. Collectively, we're responsible for the creation of millions of jobs on either side of the Atlantic for each other. So when people say, why do Americans care what happens in Europe? Well, we're so intimately linked with our economics um, that it would have a, a very serious impact on the American economy and the American worker. And then um, eight, nine, ten dollar gallon gasoline is a real possibility. And then the average American will immediately start feeling the impact of a major breakout in armed conflict across Europe. So China will be watching. That's another element to uh, consider. We'll be watching events very closely. They're going to want to see what the United States does to support and help Ukraine, if anything, in the same way that they looked at our response in Afghanistan, because, of course, they have their eye on Taiwan and they want to try to make their assessment on what a U.S. response to Chinese aggression to Taiwan might be. Uh, Russia could not do what they uh, what they're doing today without some sort of at least coordination um, collaboration, perhaps, with Beijing, because Russia's eastern military district, the eastern part of Russia in Siberia and the part that borders the Chinese border, the Russian Chinese border, is virtually empty of Russian soldiers. And this is historically unprecedented. All these soldiers are thousands of miles away along the border of Ukraine right now. So the fact that Russia felt comfortable enough to leave its backyard completely wide open to China or any other ad adversary, especially in the historical context of what are very complicated and at times fraught Chinese-Russian relations, just shows that there's some sort of um, engagement between Moscow and Russia on what's happening in Ukraine. Now, beyond that, I wouldn't try to speculate, but it is rather interesting to consider uh, China's perspective on all of this and whether or not they see this as an opportunity for them to move forward on Taiwan. Well, the former advisor to the Russian president said that he couldn't even listen to Vladimir Putin's address on the uh, to the nation on Monday night. He had to uh, read it after the fact. This is a speech of a delusional person who is no longer connected with the surrounding reality. Uh, that's a quote from Gleb Pav Pavlovsky. Uh, the National Security Council meeting that played out uh, before TV cameras earlier in the day for him was another disappointing spectacle 
made worse by the simple fact that nobody dared challenge Putin on his plans to redraw the map of Europe and to potentially start a full-blown war. And he's quoted as saying this, if you compare the decision of the Politburo with, uh, with Brezhnev about Afghanistan and the introduction of troops back then, there were more discussions. Then people argued and expressed doubts. And here you've got a bunch of mannequins, and these are the people responsible for security. It's disgusting, end quote. He says he blames the security chiefs as much as Putin for taking a path that may in fact make Russia much less secure uh, when he... Um, Uh, with the argument has been all about Russia simply needing security concerns properly addressed. And if that is uh, uh, sorted out, then it'll be all right. Well, he said nobody would have been killed for questioning Putin about his controversial and provocative decision to recognize parts of Ukraine as independent entities or playing devil's advocate. He sensed that some of them, in fact, the real security men in the room, had serious reservations. This is his sense, and admittedly, he's been out of the inner circle for a decade, but he is far from alone in his conclusions. He points out that Putin's speech to the nation is remarkable, many say, for its tone and content. And I've heard that from many uh, observers. Subsequent statements and movements equally have shaken people in Russia into wondering what tomorrow may bring. Many of them are afraid. Russia is a vast country, and it's hard to know how... Uh, These latest moves are going down overall. No doubt a significant share of the 68 percent or so Russians who who uh, polls here say give the president their approval would have uh, also approved of his speech and perhaps also his plan. But others are openly questioning what is to be gained by Russia. So it's interesting to consider how it's being viewed by those um, in the homeland. Well, as I mentioned earlier, President Biden announced today that he's going to be imposing sanctions on the owners of Nord Stream 2 pipeline connecting Russia and Germany in response to uh, Russia's actions. The move reverses a May 2021 decision to waive sanctions on the project. This is after Germany said that they're they're putting an end to the project as well. Well, in a statement issued from the White House this afternoon, the president referenced Germany's uh, recent announcement that it would halt the pipeline certification and thank the chancellor for his cooperation in holding Russia accountable for its Aggression. Nord Stream 2 is a 764-mile-long natural gas pipeline under the Baltic Sea running from Russia to Germany's Baltic um, Baltic uh, coast. So this is yet another example of what the president intends to do. While preparing for the possibility of a large-scale Russian invasion, the Ukrainian government has moved to declare a 30-day state of emergency granting citizens the right to bear arms and conscript military reservists between the ages of 18 and 60, adding nearly 200,000 troops to the country's defense as Russian troops continue to enter the uh, Donbass region. Zelensky said in a televised speech that there was uh, no need for a general mobilization of civilians. However, we need to promptly replenish the Ukrainian army and other military formations. As the Supreme Commander-in-Chief of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, I issue a decree on the conscription of reservists during the special period. We must increase the readiness of the Ukrainian army for all possible changes in the operational situation. We are certain of ourselves. We are certain of our country. We are certain in our victory. Zelensky's government is also planning to institute a 30-day state of emergency pending parliamentary approval. The state of emergency rather, will allow the government to implement additional security measures. Meanwhile, the parliament on Wednesday took steps toward giving civilians the right to bear arms though the final vote has not yet been concluded. Meanwhile, Zelensky is also challenging the West. He says, when I first attended the annual Munich Security Conference three decades ago, the thrill of victory in the Cold War was receding and had been replaced by concern about whether the North Atlantic 
treaty organization could survive without its common enemy, Soviet communism. At this year's Munich meeting, which took place last weekend, it was sadly clear that NATO's common enemy has reemerged with Vladimir Putin's attempt to reconstitute the Russian Empire by baselessly claiming sovereignty over Ukraine. But two big questions remain. Would diplomacy and the threat of economic sanctions be enough to stop Mr. Putin from invading? And should NATO be expanded and reformed to meet this new challenge? Mr. Putin has begun to answer the first question by ordering troops into eastern Ukraine. The threat of sanctions isn't enough to stop him. Well, the Ukrainian uh, president then raised both questions in Munich in a disruptive, defiant and memorable speech. Has our world completely forgotten the mistakes of the 21st or the 20th century? He asked, where does appeasement policy usually lead to? Regarding the threatened economic sanctions against Russia by Europe and the U.S., Mr. Zelensky shouted, what are we waiting for? What are you waiting for? We don't need sanctions after the bombardment begins. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 49 minutes after 4 o'clock. Actually, it's closer to 48. I think my clock is off in here. Anyway, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the second hour, Scott Kadersha. Ready or not, 12 conversations every couple needs to have before marriage. We'll also look at a new docu-series on Hillsong. That's uh, due um, later in March. Well, Russia is threatening to target sensitive U.S. assets as part of a strong and painful response to the sanctions the president of the United States has announced. The Russian government warned of a painful response to the U.S. over its sanctions. Uh, the foreign minister, uh, the minister of foreign affairs, rather, said Wednesday that the United States sanctions are part of an ongoing attempt to change Russia's course. And there should be no doubt the sanctions will receive a strong response, the ministry said. Well, the Russian government warned on Wednesday of um, their response to our sanctions and the Biden administration. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs said Russia will target sensitive U.S. assets as retaliation. They said in a statement that the U.S. sanctions against it are part of America's ongoing effort to change Russia's course. Well, yeah. Russia has proved that despite all the sanctions costs, it is able to minimize the damage, the ministry said in a statement. And even more so, sanctions pressure is not able to affect our determination to firmly defend our interests, end quote. Well, the ministry claimed that it was open to diplomacy with the U.S., but that the sanctions will be met with fierce uh, opposition. And Mitt Romney was right uh, about Putin in 2012, as the president of 2022 is learning. And apparently we've got the 80s foreign policy back. Meanwhile, Chinese news media posted instruction to social platforms about how to approach coverage of Ukraine, including a note of uh, China's need for Russia support with Taiwan, which is very telling. One outlet appeared to accidentally post guidelines on what should and should not be published, while an editor from another outlet weighed in with guidance on language and approaches that he believed necessary in walking the, the fine line. Uh, the senior editor for Xinjiao News Agency wrote in his uh, WeChat blog about how his outlet needed to walk a tight line on its Ukraine coverage, noting that China has to back Russia up with emotional and moral support while refraining from treading on the toes of the United States and European unions. They said the um, the quiet part out loud. In the future, China will also need Russia's understanding and support when wrestling with America to solve the Taiwan issue once and for all, his post went on to say. Ming said that it uh, does not, does, uh, doesn't hurt, rather, to use moderately pro-Russia language. The Horizon News, a social media account belonging to the Chinese Communist Party-owned Beijing News, 
appeared to post similar instructions, along with a note that no posts unfavorable to Russia or with pro-Western content should be published. The Ryzen News post was later deleted, according to the Washington Post. An amateur translation on Twitter claimed that the post said, from now on for Ukraine-related topics, post them in Weibo. All posts in Shimyan first and then on our major account to promote uh, that particular site. Uh, don't post anything against Russia or pro-West. Let me review your words before posting. So interesting position that apparently uh, the Communist Party is taking in the People's Republic. Um, one last thing. The Heritage Foundation's president, Kevin Roberts, released a statement yesterday with the reports of new Russian invasion into sovereign Ukrainian territory. And he points out that Vladimir Putin has decided to press his advantage. And once again, the world is being forced to deal with the consequences of President Biden's um, weakness on the world stage. Putin has watched Biden's embarrassing fold on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. He's seen Biden humiliating and chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan, and he's observed Biden's steadfast refusal to secure America's border. What the U.S. does next uh, is of critical importance because this conflict is about far more than Russia and Ukraine. It's about whether America's adversaries, especially the Chinese Communist Party, will look at the United States in the coming months and years as a formidable adversary or a weakening and irresolute superpower. How we support Ukraine will send signals about our support for other key partners and allies in the Chinese Communist Party's crosshairs, none more than Taiwan. Biden needs to show the CCP that the United States is serious about protecting its own interests. And he goes on from there. Well, it is a conflict uh, that is unfolding and no one knows where at this point it will ultimately end. Well, in other news, will there be a trucker rally in D.C.? Washington, D.C. issued an alert on Tuesday about potential protests in the weeks ahead, possibly referring to a planned trucker a convoy slated to arrive in the region in an effort to voice dissent about COVID-19 mandates and restrictions. Well, the landslide recall of three left-wing San Francisco school board members last week has media outlets across the country wondering about the wider political implications and how powerful a voting bloc angry parents could be in November. Well, Texas politics are heating up. The 2022 Republican primary for Texas Attorney General is just days away. And opponents, George P. Bush and former Texas uh, Supreme Court Justice Ava Guzman, are attacking each other's commitment to border security. In an explosive Ohio debate, an Ohio U.S. Senate debate between Republican candidate Josh Mandel and Democrat Morgan Harper devolved into a name-calling and sparring with the audience Monday night, adding the latest explosive moment to the Ohio Senate race. NATO's Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg said Tuesday that there is every indication that Russia is planning a full-scale attack on Ukraine and urged Moscow to reverse course immediately. Meanwhile, President Biden has personally completed interviews with three candidates for the U.S. Supreme Court vacancy. Uh, White House officials are not commenting further other than to say that Biden will announce his pick before the end of the month in the next few days. Just as Stephen Breyer announced he would be retiring at the end of the current term, the president has promised to pick a black woman calling such a choice long overdue. 
The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recently admitted that it withheld critical COVID-19 data from the public because the agency thought it would be misinterpreted or cause vaccine hesitancy since it weakens the case for booster shots in certain demographics. We could essentially not be trusted with accurate information. Well, apparently the CDC has been collecting detailed data on COVID-19 infections in the U.S. and organized it by age, race, vaccination status. However, the agency withheld detailed information to the public about breakthrough cases, hospitalizations and deaths, which it has been collecting since the beginning of the COVID-19 shot rollout in 2021. Led by the director, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, the CDC only recently published the first significant data on the effectiveness of boosters in adults younger than 65. However, it did not share the information on those aged 18 to 49, which is the least likely group to benefit from the booster injection. It has also failed to provide information on child hospitalizations. On a recent New York Times article, Uh, Kirsten Nordland, a spokesperson for the CDC, said the agency has been slow to release the different uh, streams of data because basically at the end of the day, it's not yet ready for prime time. In other words, they didn't believe the public could make good sound judgments based on the truth. She said the agency's prior um, when gathering any data is to ensure that it's accurate and actionable. Another reason is fear that the information might be misinterpreted. Hmm. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or the Centers for Destroyed Credibility, recently changed its standards for early childhood development as well. Flying uh, somewhat under the radar, a couple of weeks ago, the CDC released an uh, updated milestone checklist for children and included a link to the pediatrics article that referenced a study for the changes. Notably, uh, we can chalk up another one for the damage done by the COVID response. One of the more troubling milestone changes was extending a child's age for reaching expected speech and vocabulary ability. For example, the updated standard says children should speak at least 50 words at 30 months uh, old. The CDC's previous standard was 50 uh, words at 24 months old. According to the American Speech Language Hearing Association, a child at age uh, two speaking less than 50 words is a cause for Concern. Lieutenant Colonel Robert McGinnis, um, retired, says this is the beginning of a Russian invasion of Ukraine. President Biden said on Tuesday in response to the president, his recognition of Ukraine's two breakaway regions. Rebecca Grant suggests that Russia's minor incursion of peacekeeping forces into Ukraine is President Biden's last chance at world leadership. War is underway with NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg saying Russia continues to plan for full scale war. Time for President Biden to shift into battle mode. Biden can seize the initiative first by unleashing the massive sanctions he's been boasting about for weeks. Brooke Leslie Rollins weighs in, saying events in Canada have captured our attention and Americans need to understand why. Our interest in affairs in our northern neighbor is not just neighborly. What happened in Canada was, in fact, a template for the suppression of freedom uh, right here in the United States. Surprising as it is, the harbinger of the American future just might have unfolded in frigid Ottawa. Dr. Marty Makari, he says the American people are um, waking up to the fact that too many public health leaders have not always been straight with them, despite housing treasure troves of critical COVID-19 data on vaccines and on natural immunity. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has only been releasing slivers of data that support their own scientific dogma. 
and Tom Magnus, he opines, the United States is on the verge of an emergency crisis of its own making. The price of oil recently hit a seven-year high on the back of rising geopolitical tensions in Europe and the Middle East. With tensions rising between Ukraine and Russia, with no end in sight to the existing supply chain disruptions, Industry analysts expect prices to soar to over $100 a barrel before the end of the year. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a break for news and traffic here at the top of the hour. When we return, we'll hear um, in the second hour from Scott Kadersha. We'll also uh, take a look at the uh, docu-series on Hillsong Leadership that's coming out in late March. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. In this second hour, we'll have a conversation with Scott Kadersha, author of Ready or Not 12 Conversations Every Couple Needs to Have Before Marriage. We'll also take a, a review of the Hillsong docuseries that's set to be released in late March. It's unflattering and what to make of it is something we'll all have to grapple with, whether or not we attended the church or not. The church will be smeared in uh, in that docuseries by all accounts. Anyway, returning back to some of the news stories failing to pay their fair share. Nearly 30 percent of New York City bus riders and 8 percent of subway users aren't paying their fare, costing the city millions of dollars a year, according to new data released by the state operation Metropolitan Transportation Authority. American gun sales remain strong in 2021. They're still popular with nearly 19 million firearms sold legally in the U.S., the second highest total over the past two decades, according to new research from the home and personal safety group Safe Home. Invasion collateral damage is expected. An armed clash between Ukraine and Russia, coupled with punishing sanctions for Moscow, could push U.S. stocks toward another major loss, according to Goldman Sachs economists season to pray. The Supreme Court has taken the case of an artist told she must ignore her faith. Well, the court said Tuesday it would consider whether a Colorado website designer had a First Amendment right to refuse to produce same-sex wedding announcements, the latest clash between LGBT and religious rights. Since its landmark 2015 decision extending marriage rights to same-sex couples, Obergfell versus Hodges, the high court has moved cautiously in carving out constitutional exceptions for organizations and business owners opposed to those rights. From the Alliance Defending Freedom involved in the case, they're representing artist Lori Smith. For years, Colorado has relentlessly sought to target certain speakers, and other states have followed that example. As ADF explained in a brief asking the high court to accept Smith's case, the First Amendment's promises of free speech and religious liberty are bedrock principles. Yet over the past decade, those promises have been shattered. Elaine Photography and Sweet Cakes are but um, a few business examples. Baronel Stutzman was forced to retire. Emil Carpenter is risking jail. Bob um, Updergove and Chelsea Nelson are in harm's way. Jack Phillips is still in court, pursuing by a pr- pursued rather by a private enforcer who wants to finish the job. This court must act now, or officials. With enforcement powers over uh, nearly half the country, citizens will continue compelling artists to speak against their conscience while silencing them from explaining their beliefs. President Biden and the administration is ignoring the law requiring reports on jobs lost in the Keystone Pipeline cancellation. He's also required to explain how the action could affect energy costs. The timing is quite telling as energy prices soar and the country could use the pipeline. The media has mischaracterized the Florida debate on sexual orientation in school. 
I can't say I'm shocked. In the story, they explain that Florida state legislature engaged in an emotional debate on Tuesday over a measure that would ban schools from teaching young students about sexual orientation or gender identity. Young students. Critics have dubbed the measure the Don't Say Gay Bill and said it would suppress classroom discussions about gender and sexual identity that would benefit LGBTQ students. The measure would prohibit schools from teaching about sexual orientation or sexual identity in kindergarten through third grade or in any other grade in a manner not age appropriate or developmentally appropriate in accordance with state standards. Allie Beth Stuckey weighs in saying today's propaganda re don't say gay Florida bill is that teachers are forced to out students. In reality, teachers cannot keep secrets from the parents about their child's identity or sexuality. If six year old James says he wants to be Sally, the teacher has to tell mom and dad. Kyle Rittenhouse plans to sue Whoopi Goldberg also known as Karen, and other celebrities. He told Tucker Carlson, uh, we're looking at quite a few politicians, athletes, celebrities. Whoopi Goldberg is on the list. She called me a murderer after I was acquitted. A poll says 36% of Americans approve of Biden's handling of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Just above 37% approve of his handling of the economy. He's underwater by 25 points on that issue. Christian physicians are suing California over being forced to aid in assisted suicide. The objecting physician would uh, have to educate the patient about aid in dying medication and procedures and transfer the patient's files to another doctor who would provide the treatment. In addition, Senate Bill 380 shortens the period between the legally required uh, two separate notifications by the patient that they wish to undergo the procedure from 15 days to 48 hours. Documentation of the request, even if made to a physician who has religious or ethical objections to the practice, would constitute one of those required notifications, making the objecting physician effectively a participant in the end-of-life procedure, the lawsuit claims. The organizer of the Ottawa protests has been denied bail because she might re-offend if released. So the threat of organizing a peaceful protest keeps you in jail in Canada. Last September, a Canadian man accused of first-degree murder of a policeman was released on bail. Hmm. A New York professor tells students she gives priority to non-white students. The syllabus for Anna Marie Candela's social change introduction to sociology class continues. It also means that if you are white, male, or someone privileged by racial or gender structures of society to have your voice easily voiced and heard, we will often ask you to hold off on your questions or comments to give others priority and we'll come back to you a bit later or another time. A Starbucks employee secretly passed a note on a cup of coffee saying, do you want us to intervene? The 18-year-old female was sitting alone at a Starbucks in Corpus Christi over the weekend when a man approached her actively and strangely. Brandy Robertson, the woman's mother, said in a Facebook post, which has since been deleted, are you okay? Do you want us to intervene? If you do, take the lid off the cup. The Starbucks cup note read, according to the post, Robertson shared. The woman did not request help but was touched by the effort. We should be mindful of and keep our eyes open for potential traffic victims. D.C. called in the National Guard ahead of a coming trucker convoy. Joe Biden's defense secretary, Lloyd Austin, approved a request from the D.C. Metropolitan Police Department and the U.S. Capitol Police to send National Guard troops to help deal with a soon-to-be-arriving trucker freedom convoy protest. Some 400 unarmed National Guard members will be deployed to assist the MPD and the USCP. America has been has an obesity epidemic. It is uh, 
Is it COVID or the nation's high obesity rate that's primarily responsible for killing more than 900,000 Americans? With 78.4 million Americans having contracted COVID, the resulting death percentage of 1.19%, but a significant percentage of those who were hospitalized and died from COVID were obese. An AP investigation finds Fort Ord has toxic chemicals in its groundwater, and apparently the military knew about it. The result of an Associated Press investigation into the connection between toxic substances at California's Fort Ord and illnesses among those who lived and worked there. The Supreme Court will hear a Colorado case over religious liberty. Former Hunter Biden's girlfriends uh, are spilling on his lavish spending as the feds eye his tax affairs. COVID infections have plummeted 90 percent from the U.S. pandemic high. Bill Nicholson has apologized for explosive Saudi Gulf comments, which lost him a sponsor. And Colombia has decriminalized abortion. On this day in history, 1836, the siege of the Alamo begins at San Antonio, Texas. 1861, President-elect Abraham Lincoln arrives secretly in Washington to take office, following word of a possible assassination plot in Baltimore. 1870, Mississippi is readmitted to the Union. 1903, President Theodore Roosevelt signs an agreement with Cuba to lease the area around Guantanamo Bay to the United States. 1942, the first shelling of the U.S. mainland during World War II occurs as a Japanese submarine fired on an oil refinery near Santa Barbara, California, causing little damage. 1954, the first mass inoculation of schoolchildren against polio using the Salk vaccine begins in Pittsburgh as some 5,000 students are vaccinated. 1995, the Dow Jones Industrial Average closes above 4,000 for the first time, ending the day in 4,003. 2007, a Mississippi grand jury refuses to bring any new charges in the 1955 slaying of Emmett Till, a black teenager who was beaten and shot after being accused of whistling at a white woman. Grand jurors declined to indict the woman, Carolyn Bryant Donham, for manslaughter. Mm. 2011, in a major policy reversal, the Obama administration says it would no longer defend the constitutionality of the Defense of Marriage Act, a federal law banning recognition of same-sex marriage. And finally, on this day in history, 2020, White House trade advisor Pete Navarro writes a memo to President Trump warning there is an increasing probability of a full-blown COVID-19 pandemic that could infect as many as 100 million Americans with a loss of life of as many as 1 to 2 million souls. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll hear a conversation with Scott Kadersha. Ready or not, 12 conversations every couple needs to have before marriage. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the truth is divorce is a very sobering fact of life. In fact, recent Pew Research and American Psychological Association findings reveal that nearly 50% of married couples in America divorce. Well, for those who remarry, the rate is even higher. Marriage pastor, conference speaker, and popular blogger Scott Kadersha, he knows divorce is an ugly reality even for Christian couples. And believing that with every big problem comes an even greater opportunity, he helps couples wrestle through the critical conversations that need to be uh, had 
and the questions that need to be answered before marriage. In his book, Ready or Not, spelled with a K, Ready or Not, 12 Conversations Every Couple Needs to Have Before Marriage. Ready or Not is a compilation of essential lessons and real-life stories of more than 5,000 pre-married couples, and it's a resource that can help you think through and prepare for a marriage that will last. Well, Scott Kadersha is the Director of Marriage Ministry at Watermark Community Church, where he has served on the marriage team for more than 12 years. Through this ministry, he's helped more than 5,000 couples answer the question, ready or not. He lives in the Dallas area with his wife and four sons and joins us today by telephone to talk about his latest book, again, titled Ready or Not, 12 Conversations Every Couple Needs not needs to Have rather Before Marriage. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Georgine. Very good. It's good to be here. Thank you. Well, writing a book on marriage, anticipating some of the tough questions in the 21st century, is really uh, an essential for young people, or for that matter, anyone who wants to marry and to have a relationship that uh, that lasts. Now, you have been in marriage ministry for many, many years. How would you answer the question, what is the state of marriage in America today? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, for many couples... Uh, they don't really know what they're committing to. And so that we talk about marriage less, and fewer and fewer couples seem to be getting married every year. The ones who do get married uh, tend to have this mentality that they're in it until the happiness ends, and then they move on to the next one, or they coexist for the rest of their life as an unmarried couple. Uh, marriage isn't esteemed, maybe like it used to be, and so it's not the the same picture of marriage that maybe many couples used to have uh, back when I was growing up, or uh, it's a different view of marriage and what the world is, or our country has often taken on something that's really important to God and, and is so foundational to our society and culture. Well, it, it's important that so many young people have not had the opportunity to witness a happy marriage that uh, that lasts. Does that play a significant role in their understanding of the prospects of them succeeding? Yeah, absolutely. That's such a good observation. You know, many couples, you know, man and woman grew up in, in homes where mom and dad either were very unhappily married or grew up in a broken home and so never really had this, you know, solid picture of what really marriage is supposed to look like. And so they're gaining their perspective of what marriage is from social media, from television, from culture. They're defining it as you know, the culture and the world around us define it. They don't necessarily have a, a biblical worldview or picture of what really God wants to see happen in marriage. And so they're looking to everybody else to all the wrong places. Somebody or, or something is teaching them, and they're learning it from someone or someplace, and they're really not getting the right picture of what it's intended to be. Well, I appreciate that your book, Ready or Not, allows them to have a clearer picture of what's required for a marriage to stay together and really why marry at all. Now tell us a little bit about your family, your church, and the ministry that you lead. Yes, thanks for asking that. So I'm married to Kristen for 17 and a half years. Congratulations. Uh, Thank you, thank you. (laughs) She she was actually one of my teachers when I was in grad school, which uh, sounds scandalous, but it's not nearly (laughs) as scandalous as it really was. Uh, and so uh, we, you know, we met in Atlanta in 2000. Or we met in the late 90s and got married in 2001, and moved to Dallas in 2002. And I've been part of a church in Dallas called Watermark Community Church, as you mentioned, and get to work with couples all over the spectrum. You know, pre-married, newly married, enrichment, crisis. I get to work with new parents, which is a lot of fun as well when they're expecting their first child. 
And uh, speaking of being parents, you know, we've got four boys who are 14, 14, 12, and 10. So we've got our hands full at home. With, <laughs> you uh, do. With, it, it's, it's awesome. It's loud and obnoxious, and, uh, and I wouldn't have it any other way. We're having a great time raising what, you know, really what I hope will be, will be the exact thing you just said, Georgina. You know, we hope our four boys will grow up and have a really good picture of what marriage is supposed to look like and can be the kind of guys who will lead their homes really well in the future. You begin your book in the first chapter by asking the question, as your readers uh, would, what is the point of marriage anyway? And I think you, you, uh, most of our listeners, you wouldn't be, but most of our listeners would be surprised at the range of answers that you might get to that question. But you focus their attention on what is the original purpose of marriage and why is it worth uh, sticking it out? Yeah, so the, the, you know the picture of marriage. If we look at around a, a culture, you see, you know, couples are living together. Couples will move from one relationship to another. Uh, marriage could be between a man and a man, or a woman and a woman, or whatever you know the world tells us is what people will say. Whereas, you know, marriage is really intended to be a picture of God's love for the church. It's this sacrificial covenantal relationship between one man and one woman in the way that God designed it and created it. And so you and I don't get to define it or make up what it is when it's already been established as this beautiful relationship that that God designed to show us really his deep love for us. It's a gift to us and something, frankly, that way too many of us just kind of abuse or neglect. Yeah, but I, I appreciate that you begin there because that is a question that um, many people, even married people, are unable to answer. Mm-hmm. Now, as a as a person who works with uh, pre-married couples, are there signs that you see with these couples that suggest that they will, in fact, succeed or uh, markers that suggest or warning signs that say they're really not ready for marriage or marriage or they're, they may not be compatible at all? Yeah, that's good. So, you know, one thing would be, uh, and we've actually asked our leaders this. We have a large ministry we lead for pre-married couples. I just said, what are some common characteristics of couples who will do well in marriage? And so they're looking at the couples that they lead on the pre-married side and then watching them down the road when they're married. And one of the most common characteristics of couples who do well are those who are really teachable. And so they're humble. They, they're willing to hear where they're falling short. They're uh, you know, their significant other can lovingly correct them or point them in a different direction or, or challenge them might be a better way to say it. Uh, a mentor couple, they let them speak into the into their life and say, you know, a mentor sees something that's not the best, that they're willing to accept uh, a challenge in that way. Uh, they're couples who will open up their lives to others, and so they'll let friendships speak in and wound them or sharpen them, and they don't choose to do this isolation lone ranger thing. And so the flip side of that would be couples who are individuals who are prideful, who isolate, who think they've got it all figured out. Those are couples that we would say, that's that's a big warning Mm -hmm. sign. You're kind of signing up for that for the rest of your life. And so you want someone who's teachable and humble and will invite others in rather than isolate. Generally speaking, how do you think the church does in approaching uh, the subject of premarital counseling or preparation, and then beyond the uh, the taking of the vows, walking alongside uh, couples to help them succeed. Yeah. So what what I've heard so many times over the years is uh, is a lot of churches say that they don't do premarital counseling because couples don't want it because they say they don't need it. They've got all their stuff together, and I I just think that's a wrong wrong view because when I look around me when I see the couples who come to us for counsel. 
they're you know they're growing up in a pornified culture where they're they've grown up looking at porn that's all they know they've been with multiple partners sexually they don't have a good picture of marriage they're living together they're sexually active some of them are pregnant uh some of them might be you know they might be they might both love the lord but just have a really wrong view of marriage and relationships and so uh, if we're not reaching those couples, then we're not doing the job within the church. And the church has just, frankly, I think, been really weak in this area because we neglect putting good resources towards preparing couples for marriage. And then the other side of it, I'm mm-hmm. so glad you asked, most churches do nothing for newlyweds. And so they might come to the church to get married or to get premarital counseling, and then once they're married, they disappear until maybe they have their first kid. So, you know, years ago, we made the decision at our church we're going to do everything we can to prepare them well for marriage, and then we're also going to do everything we can to help them start their marriage on the right foot as newlyweds, to build their life on the right foundation. And so we do special groups for newlyweds to help them connect with others and grow their marriage from the from the minute they say, I do. That is so wise, because mistakes made early on can plague a marriage for many, many years. We're talking about the book Ready or Not, and that's spelled with a K, Ready or Not, 12 Conversations Every Couple Needs to Have Before Marriage. We'll continue our conversation with Scott Kadersha in just a few moments, but I do need to take a quick break, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Scott Kadersha. He is the director of marriage ministry at Watermark Community Church, where he served on the marriage team for more than 12 years. Through that ministry, he's helped more than 5,000 couples answer the question, ready or not. He lives in the Dallas area with his wife and four sons, and uh, he joins us to talk about the book, Ready or Not, 12 Conversations Every Couple Needs to Have before marriage. Well, let's talk about the book and how it's structured, because I think these are such important questions. And I love that in my hand is one volume that asks some of the most essential Mm -hmm. questions uh, when you're considering marriage. And I would even go so far as to say, if you're a newlywed, this is a great resource as well. So walk us through it a little bit. Yeah. So uh, thank you for that. Uh, So, you know, really looking at couples over the last, you know, 13 years, 12, 13 years, and we just decided to, or, you know, I decided to address all of the major issues and questions that come up. And so things like, what is your view of marriage? How do you communicate and resolve conflict? Uh, spiritual intimacy. And so what does it look like to build our lives together, you know, individually and then as a couple on the right foundation? Uh, that's chapter three. Chapter four is, um, uh, is what do you do with those differences? And so what if one of you has an, you know, is extroverted, the other one's introver- introverted, one of you uh, loves to, to save everything, the other one throws everything away, so how do you deal with those differences? And frankly, you know, every couple has, uh, you know, an unlimited number of them, and so yep. are you going to just kick them out when you're tired of them, or are you going to learn how to live with each other in the right way? And then do you want to talk about money and family, sex, uh, emotional intimacy, children, Friendships, communication, all our uh, community, all the all the big topics that typically come up that couples have questions about. And I think it's important to point out that the book is structured in a way it uh, you have questions that are intended for uh, individual reflection. 
um, discussions that are designed to help determine marital readiness. So a couple who either goes uh, through the book as a couple or with uh, others who are mentoring them, it really gives a, paints a clear picture. This is where we stand. We may not quite be ready or we are fully prepared mm-hmm. or these are the challenges we can anticipate and prepare for. Um, so you're not just going into this major commitment blind. That's right. Yeah, so what, what I wanted to do was give a really biblical picture of each of those topics. I wanted it to be really practical. And so, uh, you know, we live in a culture that really doesn't tell us what to do or how to do it. And so I wanted to give them really clear tracks to run on, uh, you know, and hear the specific questions you, you should probably think through or talk about. And then I wanted it to be really authentic and real. And so the way I went about that is instead of making up fake scenarios with couples, I actually interviewed 12 couples I know really well, got their story, and then told their story and taught through each of their kind of personal testimonies. So we get to learn from the good decisions they make. We get to learn from the mistakes they made. And so every chapter is is really, really authentic because I want couples to have a a very real view of the good and the bad of marriage. Yeah. yeah. Now, how do you see this uh, this book being used to its full potential? A couple sitting down with one another, or what? how would you recommend uh, this be applied to most uh, effect? Yeah, I think, you know, a couple reading it separately and then coming together and talking through it as boyfriend, girlfriend, or like you said, as newlyweds. And then I, ideally you get another couple who's further down the road, maybe a couple who's married, and you get the opportunity to uh, to talk through it with them. And so, you know, instead of just reading about uh, communication and talking about it with one another, you actually get to bring somebody in who's walked through this in real life and and get a picture. Hey, what does this look like for you in, in, in real life? What is it? How do you communicate and resolve conflict? But books are always helpful. Mm-hmm. But I think it's much more helpful if you can bring in real people to help you navigate what it really looks like. Now, at the end of your book, you have a section that I think is also essential. Uh, you answer questions like, how do we break up, stop having sex, and eight other frequently asked questions. For example, what if we've been sexually active with each other but want mm-hmm. to stop? That may be in the back of the minds of, of individuals, but you know, to whom do you talk about that? Uh, and you offer some practical and biblical advice uh, for living up to your commitment to sexual purity as you're anticipating marriage. Yeah, so that's, you know, part of my story, Georgine, is I, I was not, I did not make good decisions on the pre-married side and, uh, you know, was sexually active and heavily involved in pornography. And and so when I, when I really trusted the Lord with my life, I still had all this experience and, you know, these expectations. And so I'm largely writing out of it. Not, when I ask that question is I get the struggle mm-hmm. and and it's very real, and uh, especially if you've been active with one another. And what I would tell that couple is just because you've done something in the past doesn't mean you're destined to repeat it in the future. And if somebody's life is truly yielded to the Lord, they're under the control of the Holy Spirit. They don't have to continue to give in to those desires that are, frankly, a good thing to have, that you want to have that desire, but you don't have to give in to it and sin uh, and to the saying that, you know, we absolutely can, through through the Lord, through his leading, you know, leading and guiding in our life, we can say we're going to wait until it's actually the right time. Uh, again, not what we decide is right, but what God says is right. 
another question that you asked that I think is so important. I remember before uh, my husband went to my father to ask for my hand, I had purposed in my heart, if my father said no, that either meant no, we were never to be married or no, this wasn't the right time, but I wasn't going to move forward. But you asked, what if our friends and family don't approve of our relationship or engagement? That's an important element. It may not seem when you're in the height of, uh, you know, of love, may not seem all that important, but it is a really important question. And you offer direction if you're in that situation. Yeah, that's that's such an unfortunate situation that comes up, you know, quite often. I think any of us would want, if a couple is going to move towards marriage, the ideal would be that everyone would celebrate that relationship. They'd be excited about it. Parents would be willing to, you know, invite people to come to it, help pay for it, whatever it might be. And so our hope is that any couple who gets married would, would be celebrated by those around them. Uh, but if you get to that place and you want to ask, you know, you ask for the the woman's hand in marriage, you go to the father and he says no, uh, I would look at a couple different things. Mm-hmm. One I'd want to know is that the collective wisdom of everyone in your life. And so what do both sets of parents say, other family members, other friends? And if it's just one individual who says no, even though it is a very important one, the parent, if that goes against what the rest of your community and the rest of the world would say, I would still pay attention to parents, but I would also not let them be the only voice. And so, for instance, let's say, uh, you know, I've heard uh, I've heard couples uh, who are, you know, a, a mixed ethnicity relationship, and parents say no to that because uh, because their child is going to marry somebody who's a different ethnicity. And if they're both followers of Jesus Christ, that's that's the most important thing. And so, the color of the skin, the background, that should not be a reason why a parent would say no to a man and woman coming together in marriage. And so, you know, parents will sometimes say no for that reason. Uh, You know, other times they might not have, the parents might not have the same view Mm -hmm. of the gospel. And so that might be a reason why parents would say no. And so in those situations, I'd go to the rest of the community. And you don't want to dishonor your mother and father, but you don't have to have their permission to move forward. Well, I'm so glad. It is a really loud voice that you've got to be willing to listen to because it is your mom and dad, and they probably love you and want the best for you. I'm so glad you mentioned that. It just so happened that my father was a wise man. He was a follower of Jesus, so his counsel could be relied upon. And the scenario you just outlined, I was marrying someone outside my ethnicity, so it was a very similar situation. So if it's wise counsel, if it's godly counsel, it can be embraced. If the circumstances had been different, I might have had a different uh, approach. You also address what if one of the pair wants a prenuptial agreement? Should you combine your bank accounts? Um, uh, the the role of pornography that may have been part of the life of the couple or the individual, just really practical questions. And I think a lot of young people in particular might be apprehensive bringing up in any other context, but you address it in a way and uh, direct their attention uh, to what the scriptures have to say in a very practical and loving and approachable way. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. Those are even even hearing you, you know, read back that list of questions. <laughs> I'm going, man, what was I thinking taking those on? Right. Well, clearly, you're, up, they're real questions. Yes, yeah. you're somebody who knows what the real questions are, and you care <laughs> enough about the people that you're counseling and your readers that you're going to address them, even though it makes all of us a little bit uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's it's a it's a great book. And again, I would recommend it. In fact, I can think of a couple of people that I know are getting married in the next uh, six to 12 months. I'm going to gift them a copy of the book again. Ready or not. Twelve conversations every couple needs to have before marriage. Uh, Scott uh, Kadersha is the author with a uh, forward by Gary Thomas. And the book is published by Baker and available in bookstores. Thank you so much for this resource. And I think it's going to be a great blessing and help to lots of people who are anticipating marriage uh, and want to want to make that commitment for life. Thank, thank you so much for having me and for the kind words, Georgine. Really, really grateful. Thanks so much for joining us. Again, Scott Kadersha, author of Ready or Not, spelled with a K, 12 conversations every couple needs to have before marriage. I know uh, Dan Rice and I went through premarital counseling. It was very useful. I felt that we were mature enough, we were ready, but there were issues that were brought up in the course of that that helped us, I think, avoid some of the major conflicts or at least anticipate some of the challenges that we hadn't even thought of. So it's a great way to go. If your church doesn't offer it, this is a great resource. It may be a resource you and your church might want to, to use as well. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, I was disheartened to learn about a new docu-series, as it's being called, on Hillsong Church. Well, one of the leaders from the church is criticizing the upcoming uh, docu-series, uh, for overlooking the church's good deeds. Well, it focuses on Hillsong Church. Uh, the interim global pastor, Phil Dooley, contended this week that the upcoming Discovery Plus docuseries titled Hillsong, A Mega Church Exposed, paints an unfair picture of the church. Now, this is yet another example of a church in the spotlight for less than flattering reasons. Well, it is, uh, I'm told, and I've watched the trailer, a three-part series. It comes to the streaming service on March 24th, It purports to demonstrate how the Australia-based Global Evangelical Church Network um, has told the fine line between cult and culture. That's according to recently released trailer. While uh, preaching for a global simulcast Sunday uh, to Hillsong churches all over the world, the interim pastor, Dooley, he tried his, uh, his message from Nehemiah 4 to the situation surrounding the church. He seemed to compare the uh, resistance Nehemiah faced to Hillsong's controversies in recent years. There are those who are against what God is doing, he said, and we felt the pain of that. Uh, He was speaking on the 19th of this uh, month in his uh, message to all of the churches. Well, Dooley and his wife, they served as youth pastors in Sydney, Australia, before leading uh, Hillsong South Africa in 2008. They're now stepping in for Brian Houston, who founded Hillsong in 1983. He's 68 years old. He recently stepped down as Hillsong's uh, global senior pastor as he fights a criminal charge in Australia. So again, a discouraging situation. Well, Houston is accused of failing to report decades-old child sexual abuse allegations against his father, Frank Houston, after being informed of the allegations in 1999. He was serving as the head of the Australian branch of the Assemblies of God at that time. Well, his father served as the head of the Assemblies of God in New Zealand until 1971. So uh, the, the old pastor, if you will, um, is facing charges for not reporting what someone else did, his father. Well, the docuseries is going to dwell, delve into the controversy surrounding Carl Lentz, the former pastor of Hillsong, New York City. Lentz was fired from his role at New Song due to moral failures in November of 2020. Hillsong said in December of that year that it took action 
amid allegations of inappropriate uh, sex between staff members and volunteers. And additionally, pastors faced allegations that they misused the church's funds. I know that the temptation is to simply say, well, that was them. That's not my church. That's not what we're doing. And that's absolutely true. But we're all painted with a very broad brush. Now, I have no doubt that the church at large will survive this latest, which in some cases is nearly two years old. But it is disheartening uh, when it comes to our attention. Well, Dooley, again, the interim pastor in uh, Australia, maintained that the picture Discovery Plus is painting of Hillsong is far removed from the truth of who we are as a church. Now, I have no doubt that that's the case. They're going to focus on the absolute worst which, if true, um, bears being exposed. Uh, but nonetheless, it's a one-sided picture, according to Dooley. Well, he specifically slammed the producers of Hillsong, um, a mega church exposed. That's the title of the docuseries. And he noted that their purpose is not the healing of people, but simply to hurt the church. Uh, if those producers were truly attempting to do an expose, I would like to expose them to a place called uh, Gugalethu or something like that. It's in the township of Cape Town, South Africa, and a school there, uh, he shared. And as I mentioned, he and his wife served in South Africa uh, for some time. So he's very familiar with these outreach ministries. He went on to say that our church collectively around the world provided them with accommodation so that they could experience a better life and an opportunity for a better education. And we have continued to do that with these beautiful kids. The uh, interim pastor went on to list the good things the church is doing, and I have no doubt there's a, a lengthy list. But not only that, I'd love to expose, he went on to say, I'd love to expose them to Philippi Village, not too far down the road, or a small place in Johannesburg where we're teaching young people from disadvantaged backgrounds digital skills so that they can be educated and they can get the kind of skills that enable them to step into a digital economy rather than become a statistic in a country that has over 60% youth unemployment because that's what our church is doing. And again, I have no doubt it's worth uh, mentioning and highlighting, but that's not the purpose, apparently, of this documentary that's going to be released in late March. The pastor numbered other charitable deeds the church is engaged in worldwide, including sponsoring children with Compassion International. He went on to say our church helping all the partners that we partnered with, say Compassion, for example, who have been able to help thousands of young people get a better education and families out of poverty. And we have played our part time and time again in serving and helping, end quote. Well, while addressing the upcoming docuseries, uh, Dooley, who has been a part of the Hillsong Church for over 30 years, briefly acknowledged the alleged victims of some of the church's leaders. Now, we're talking about leaders who should be held to account, victims who uh, should have the opportunity to receive justice, but represents presumably a relatively small percentage of the church. And he believes the docuseries is painting with a very broad brush the rest of the church. He said he was saddened by their experiences. Um, he didn't talk about the church leaders and whether or not they should be held accountable. And in this case, it perhaps legally. Well, he later stated that Hillsong has never claimed to be a perfect church. For the series, uh, Discovery Plus partnered with the New York Post and investigative journalist Hannah Frischberg, who's uh, written several articles about Hillsong and former Pastor Lentz. Uh, Ronan Karim, the New York-based fashion designer, who has uh, stated that she had a five-month uh, relationship with the former pastor, is seen speaking in the docu-series of her relationship and even has footage, um, video from her phone of the pastor at that time. Other interviewees included Preachers and Sneakers founder, author Ben Kirby, 
Jacelyn Hayes and Janice Legata, two women who volunteered for Hillsong to work under the former pastor. With more than 150,000 global members, Hillsong has recently been entangled in scandal. This is what the uh, uh, the film trailer says. Hillsong, a mega church exposed, will profile numerous ex-members of the church who've come forward to share harrowing allegations of the trauma, abuse, financial and labor exploitation that created a culture of chaos within the church. The synopsis of the project says, well, the uh, series will also examine how Hillsong was able to grow into a global brand while uncovering the truth behind the headlines of recent scandals and shining a light on the fine line between culture, corporation and cult. Well, it is a um, it is a, a sad expose. Whether or not it's accurate, I don't know. Um, but there are a couple of questions. Is is there an axe to grind on the part of those who are in the film? Does the story need to be told is another question. And how might uh, this change the, the Western concept of church in the future? What can be learned from the mistakes that clearly were made. And I, I don't use the word mistake lightly. I, I realize conscious uh, decisions to move in a direction contrary to the scriptures is a conscious decision and not simply a, a, a light mistake. But nonetheless, can we learn something from this example uh, from the film? Uh, I was reminded by one commentator who, um, a pastor who commented on the film of First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12 in the NIV. Um, And it says, um, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. It's a reminder that the the goal uh, shouldn't be the size, the scope and, and all of that, but the personal um, the personal testimony and life of the individual in a position of leadership. It's just a, another sad expose. But again, the church will withstand this, but some will use this as a an excuse not to embrace the church, to reject the gospel. Um, and again, not really sure what all to make of it. The series is a um, Discovery Plus, so you won't be able to see it just on regular television. You have to be a subscriber But my guess is it will be seen by lots and lots of people who will draw their own conclusions, not just about Hillsong, but about the church in general and whether or not it's worthy of uh, allegiance of any kind. Anyway, I would uh, encourage all of us to pray, not just for Hillsong, not just because of this film, but pray for our pastors, those who are in positions of leadership, who are under tremendous pressure and uh, who are targets of the enemy who would like nothing more than to discredit their credibility. I think of so many church leaders who are doing incredible work as leaders in the church whose focus is in the right place. Um, And I I imagine some of them are right there at Hillsong at one of the many locations around the world um, to paint all of them with the same brush as those who have fallen away or um, exploited members of the church uh, would be a mistake. Nonetheless, just let's pray for the church that our, um, our witness would not be tainted as members of leadership tend to fall. Anyway, kind of a difficult subject um, to cover for me personally, and I will certainly be praying. Well, we are out of time. We're going to take a, what, a 22-hour break, but we'll be back tomorrow and hope you will join us. Do want to thank James Blend for producing, Sam Maupin for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Remember to pray for the church in Ukraine. 
and to pray for the church worldwide that we would be and do what Christ has called us to be and to do. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.